if you wouldn't turn back to those Matthew passages. I don't know about you, but I grew up on and actually enjoy game shows on television. I don't know which one is your favorite. I've watched them for a long time. There have been so many. Um, Obviously, there's Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune, but in the past, there were some really good ones. $10,000 Pyramid. How many remember that one? Yes. How about Password? That's really getting out there. Um, There's Family Feud, Newlywed Game. Remember Hollywood Square? Some of you you don't know anything about that one. Um, What's My Line? Uh, Weakest Link? Um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Those are more common ones, I, I think. But one of my favorite ones is one of the older ones. And that was To Tell the Truth. You remember To Tell the Truth? There was a host and there was a celebrity panel that sometimes changed out a little bit. But it was always this kind of a format. There were three contestants all claiming to have the same identity. Um, Two of them were imposters, but one of them was the real person, the real identity. And it was the job of the panelists, remember, to discover which ones were imposters and which was the one that was telling the truth. Uh, Matthew's gospel, really, when you think about it, is kind of set up that way. Uh, Matthew sets it up um, because throughout the gospel, there are three people who are claiming to have the same identity. Uh, One of them is Herod at Jesus' birth, one of them as Caesar during Jesus' life, and then, of course, Jesus himself. And all three of them are claiming to be king. Um, But we know, and Matthew's going to prove to us as we hopefully read his work and make a decision, two of them are imposters. Two of them are not really the king. There is one, and it's the readers of Matthew, it's you and I this morning, it's our job as we read that gospel to discover who the imposters are and who the real king is. And so Matthew goes out of his way in a very, very thorough way to frame his gospel in such a way that he asks this same question related to that topic, and he asks it over and over and over. And that question is, who is king? In Matthew 1, he tries to supply the answer to push us toward Jesus, and he says, Jesus is king. Let me prove it to you because of his lineage, his heritage, his birth. And he gives us Jesus' genealogy. In Matthew 2, uh, it's said that Jesus was born king of the Jews. Now, that is in contrast to Herod, who was the appointed Roman king. He was the client king. Herod wasn't truly all Jewish, and so he couldn't have been the king of the Jews. And so right off the bat, in Matthew's gospel, even at Jesus' earliest days, what Matthew does is put before us a choice. Who will be your king, Jesus or Herod? Peter, later on in the middle of the gospel, in chapter 16, he makes a confession after traveling with Jesus, hearing him speak, watching him do miraculous things, and Jesus asked the disciples the question, and again, we were supposed to, as readers, this is a question asked to us. Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, and remember, Christ means the anointed one. It means king. Peter says, let me tell you, I know who you are. You are the king, the son of the living God. 
Later on in 21 of Matthew, Jesus rides in on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9. And the prophecy says, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and riding on a donkey. And Jesus rides in. And as he rides in, everyone on that day has to make a choice. You and I on Palm Sunday have to make a choice. Is Jesus really the king? Later on, even after the triumphal entry in Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story right before, really, he's arrested. And he tells about a future judgment day where it says that there will be the sheep on his one hand, on his right hand, and the goats on the left. Those are people who received him as king and those who rejected him. And he says, on that day, the king will say to those who are a sheep, you are blessed of my father. You can enter into the reward of eternal life. And to the ones on his left, the king says that you have eternal punishment waiting for you. And Jesus says the decision about who is king can't be any more important because it involves your eternal destiny. But of course, we're not done because the gospel ends the way it began and the way it goes through all. It still asks who is king. And so Jesus is being tried before the religious leaders, and they bring all kinds of false witnesses before him. And none of them can convict Jesus, and all their testimonies contradict. And so finally, the high priest in frustration says straight out to Jesus, he says, are you the Christ, the Son of God? He says, are you really the king of Israel? And Jesus says, yes, I am. And, And again, there is no wiggle room. There is no middle ground. Not in Matthew's gospel, not from Jesus' lips. Jesus says, I'm the king, so what are you going to do with it? In fact, the last time it's asked in the gospel is when Jesus stands before Pilate, right before he's condemned to be crucified. And they're saying that he is king. That's what the Jews are shouting, that he's claiming to be. And so Pilate himself asked Jesus, are you then the king? Matthew 27, 11. And Jesus says, it is as you say. See, all throughout the gospel, that's how it's framed. And over and over again, and why God brought you here this morning, is he doesn't just want the readers of Matthew to see it. He wants to ask you the question. See, who is king? But let me say it a little straighter to you, because it's even more direct than that. It's not just who is king, but who is your king, see? Who sits on, no, really, who sits on the throne of your heart? Who really Who really rules your life? Who actually has authority? Who calls the shots in your day-to-day existence? Who really decides in every scenario what's right and wrong in your life? Who reigns over your relationships? Who's the king of your calendar and of your priorities and of your finances and of the innermost desires of your heart? See, at its core and its essence, Palm Sunday is about declaring Jesus to be king. It's declaring that Herod and the Caesar and, of our world and all the like, see, they're really imposters. So when you declare Jesus as king, you're declaring everyone else who's pretending to be, to be imposters. And you're saying this, I've discovered who really the king is. It's Jesus. And therefore, I'm going to live like that. And so Matthew pushing us to make that decision, to see Jesus as the king, does one more thing in this book that I'd like to bring out this morning and spend our time on. It's a contrast. It's a contract, you, contrast and a comparison using back-to-back chapters and two different scenes, two different crowning scenes, two different kinds of coronations, as it were. One is in chapter 26 with the woman who anoints Jesus, and the other one is Jesus 
obviously before the Roman soldiers. But it's interesting, just to show you what it's about. One is by a woman, and one is by a group of religious leaders who turned Jesus over to Roman soldiers. Now, in Jesus' day, men's testimony uh, was far more valid than a woman's. But Matthew chooses to say this. Let go of what the religious leaders say. Don't even begin to go down the road of what the Roman soldiers and pilots say. I want you to listen to this singular individual woman over these group of men. Now see, that wouldn't be normally how you convince someone who, who really is king. But that's how Matthew does it. Because that's the kind of work and change that goes on. See, the woman is a follower of Jesus. But the men... Some of them religious as, as the leaders are. See, they're not followers. And Jesus, and here's what Matthew says. I want you to listen to the woman. She loves Jesus. She, he is her king. These people are not. She has no power. She has no status. They have all the power and all the status. But here's what Matthew says. She's right and they're wrong. Now, see, you're going to have to, when you crown Jesus king, you're going to have to believe that because you live and I live in a culture where almost everybody who has power and clout would say Jesus is not the king. And there are a few individuals, people in your life, that don't have any of those clout, that don't have any of that status, and they're going to tell you completely contrary to what almost everything our world says. And that's what it'll take if you crown Jesus as king. See, she anoints his head with oil. They, They anoint his head with a crown of thorns. And so again, in the contrast and the comparison of these two chapters, you have to answer the question, who is king? And so the first example says, this is what it looks like when Jesus is your king. And the second one, the soldiers, this is what it looks like when he is not your king. Now you may think, I already know the answer to that question, but you have to say, not just intellectually, not just the facts, not just the words that come out of my mouth, that's not what makes Jesus king. See, I want you to focus on in these two comparisons, right? I want you to focus on how they treat Jesus because that's the difference between when he's king and when he's not in your life. So there are going to be two coronations, and we're going to look at them because they're opposites of one another. One is the woman when she crowns him king in honor, but one is going to crown him king in dishonor. And your job this morning is to discover which one is really true of you. Not what you think, not what you've professed, but what you actually live out. So let's take them and unpack them one at a time. Can we do that? Let's look at Mary and uh, crown him with honor. Look again, if you would, at Matthew 26 and verses 6 through 13. If you take these two texts and compare them side by side, what you'll find out is these individuals demonstrate, and I want you to think about this in your life, these individuals demonstrate what they actually think of Jesus by what they do or put, namely, on his head. And I want you to remember that. Now, our text says in 26 and verse 7, it reads this. A woman came to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment and underlined it, and she poured it on his head. In the Old Testament, you took very expensive oil and you poured it on people's head only on rare occasions. One was if they were a guest in your house, which you never usually use expensive oil to do that. But if, he, if someone was 
uh, uh, being prepared for burial, and Jesus mentions that in this text, that you would put ointment on them. And the more they meant to you and the more wealth you had or the more they were worth to you, the more expensive the oil would become. Or, more commonly, in the Old Testament, you would anoint someone's head with oil, expensive oil, if they were the priest, and particularly a high priest, or you were announcing to them that they were king in Israel. Do you remember the text about King David in 1 Samuel 16, 12? Samuel is told by God to go to the house, right? And he's supposed to pick the son, and all the sons come up before him, and David's the last one, and they finally usher him in because he was out with the sheep. And God says, not any of these other ones, but he says, arise and anoint him because this is the one. See, he was announcing that, hey, this is God's choice for king. And so here we have Mary, and she takes an alabaster box or a flask, and she cracks open the neck of it. It's a little box with a very thin, or a little flask with a very thin neck. And when you want to use it, you usually take off the top, and it's got a, not a cork, but something we would say today like that. But Mary doesn't do that because she's going to anoint Jesus because he is her king. And here's how she's going to do it. She snaps the neck of it because then you're able to pour it. You see, it's expensive. It's worth 300 denarii. That was, in first century terms, a year's wage. So let's say the average median uh, income or salary in America is 30 or 40 or maybe $50,000. That's what currency would have, that's what it would have cost in our day. Imagine taking a fifty. bottle of cologne. That's certainly more than Chanel number five. And she breaks and snaps the neck of it. Why? Because he's her guest. No, because he is going to be buried. Well, partially, even though I'm not sure she knows that, but he says that. It's not because she thinks he's a priest, but what has Matthew been driving us to? Why does Matthew put this incident in there. Why? Because he's showing us about how one individual who understands who Jesus is and that she has received him as, this is how you act when Jesus is your king. And let me tell you this, she has planned it. I believe she's saved up for it. Nobody just does a year's worth of wages for nothing. It's not an accident. She has planned it. It's her choice. She is saying to everyone there that day, and most of all, Jesus, I want you to know this. You are my king. And in doing so, she doesn't spare not even one drop of it. Verse 6 says, she pours it on his head. See, that's how you treat your king. You know what? You anoint his head because here's what she's saying. I don't care what anyone else thinks. You are king. And you are my king. And listen, it's so much that she pours on him that in verse 6 he he says, she poured it on my head. Verse 12 says, she poured it on my body. So which means she poured so much of it that Jesus is beginning to be covered with it. It goes down his head, through his hair, probably onto his shoulders because he says my body. So she's not just pouring out and reserving some. Though this woman has declared Jesus is king and here's how she wants to express it. She wants to pour all of it out on him. Now listen, not even all the religious people there in that day think that's a great idea. The disciples see this extravagant expression of her view of Jesus' rule in her life. And the disciples ask this, if you look at the other gospels, chiefly Judas, who kept the money and was looking for a little bit on his own, the disciples say, why would you waste like this? Can I tell you this? Here's one of the things that marks people when Jesus is king. 
There is no extravagance that we lay out and pour out on him that would be considered a waste. None. To pour it out on Jesus would be considered never enough. It's never a waste. See, there are two anointings of Jesus in the gospel. One is at the beginning of his ministry when the lady comes in and pours the, the oil and the lavish, expensive perfume on his feet and she wipes it with her hairs. You remember that story? So the first one is anointing Jesus' feet, but the last one is anointing Jesus' head. So we might say from head to toe, here's what these two women think of Jesus, that he is worth it all. See, that there is no expense too great to express my love for this king because Jesus is king. And in response to the disciples who consider this a waste, here's what Jesus says. And listen, if you might think that what it costs you to serve Jesus is a waste, listen to what Jesus said when you pour your life out and sacrifice for him. He says, why do you trouble this woman? You know what she's done? She has done a, listen to the text, verse 10, a beautiful thing for me. And literally, in the Greek text, the word beautiful means she has done a good work for me. See, contrary to what the disciple says, she's not done something bad. She has done something good. And Jesus considers that when you think he's king, and you go out of your way and intentionally, purposely plan ways to show extravagant love for him, you know what he says? That is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. People might tell you to balance it out, that you shouldn't do all those things, and you're going to tie. You know what Jesus says? It's a beautiful thing. Now listen, Joseph of Arimathea, after Jesus' crucifixion, with the help of Nicodemus, takes him down from the cross, and they take him to a tomb that's his. And with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, they anoint Jesus. Now see, that kind of money and that kind of pound, that kind of ointment and that kind of all those fragrances and things that they did, see, that was considered enough to be a royal burial. And what Joseph and Nicodemus are saying, I believe Jesus is king. Let me show you, because the way I'm going to express it is how I treat him in his burial. And this woman, although it's not 75 pounds, she is a preview of what the two men would do publicly. She is doing personally and privately, because she is going to say this, I want you to know in my life, that Jesus is king, and I want to give him a royal expression of how much he means to me. And you cannot read the story of this woman and the coronation and the anointing that she gives Jesus and not ask the question, is your life, is it a memorial to the infinite worth of King Jesus? Is your life filled with planned extravagances, beautiful things, that you have intentionally planned to show the world the infinite worth of King Jesus in your life. See, to choose Jesus as king, if you haven't done so already, you will. You will find out this. To choose him as king will be an expensive thing. And by that, I do not mean primarily money. It will cost you for Jesus to be your king. You've heard of the phrase, right? Sticker shock? It's usually something that's applied to when we go buy a car. Have you ever done that? You, 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 it's time to buy a new car, and you go to the dealership, and you know the one that you want. You've seen it on the internet. And you go there, and you see it in person, and you actually see it, and it's stunning. I mean, the lines are perfect on it. I mean, you get in the car. I don't know about you. This is a new car smell. I love that. 
And you get in there, and there's leather, and all the new technical gadgets, and the safety stuff, and you go in there, and how great it is. And you sit in this car, and you go, yeah, I, I have no more questions. This is my dream car. This is the car for me. And then you get out, and you look at the little sticker in the window, and you go, oh my, it's like a kick in the gut, right? It's called sticker shock, because you look at that, and you say, that's crazy. That can't break. And you call the guy over, and you ask him, is this really the price? Why? Because you can't believe how expensive it is. And all of a sudden, your dreams are starting to shatter because you're beginning to ask yourself questions like this. Can I really afford this? I know I can go out 72 months with the payments now, but can I really afford it? If I can't afford it now, I don't know if I'll be able to afford it 72 months later. Right? So you ask yourself, is it worth it? It's sticker shock. But can I tell you? Sticker shock isn't something that only takes place in cars. You go out for a sports team in high school, I did this in college, and you go, I want to be on the team, and I want to play this sport, and it's great, and you're excited until you go to the first practice, and I remember in college running and running and running and running in basketball and in soccer, and I remember looking over who guys next to me who after the running part of the practice were going over and throwing up. I mean, that, I mean, you go, I want to be on the team, but you didn't realize what the sticker shock of playing basketball or soccer would be. You didn't know what it would take out of you. You didn't know all the time and the energy that it would take out of you. See, it's different, isn't it? Sticker shock comes into play. You get married, there's sticker shock. It's a great ceremony. It's awesome. And, and you get married, and you're on the honeymoon. You come home in a couple months. Oh, honey, you were, you know. And you do all these things for them, and then two months later, you get into it, and you go, oh, wow, you do that? And why are your clothes all over the floor? And look at the sink. And aren't you going to, and you have all the questions. You begin, oh, my, right? And the daily grind and the daily pressure starts setting in, and they start to take toll on your life. And you didn't realize, oh, it's going to take this? It's going to take this to be a good husband or a good wife? Sticker shock. You have a baby, and I remember, wow, first baby we had, and you're so excited, and you know, Gucci goo and all that stuff, and you take them home. And then sticker shock comes in the form of, oh, you want me to change a diaper? Are you serious? And I gotta do that? I remember my dad having to do it when I was a little kid. I had to tie a towel around his face when my mom was gone so he could change a diaper. That's how bad it was for him. And you begin to say, oh, a baby, and then they start crying. And you realize, oh, sleepless nights. And they grow up, and you have so many tears, and you cry over everything. And then you, oh, on top of it, i got to pay college tuition. And you begin to go, oh, yeah, having a child, having a kid. It's, it's sticker shock, right? See what Palm Sunday is about? So Palm Sunday is about sticker shock, about what it costs for you to follow King Jesus. See, you, you, you ask Jesus to be your Savior, and you, you take him in your life as your Lord and your King. And it's so great because now you realize, oh, I'm not going to die and go to hell. I'm going to go to heaven. And now I have some meaning and significance and purpose in my life. And you're so happy because your life is changing until your friends don't want to hang out with you anymore. And they start wondering what happened to you and why are you like that? And in high school, you're not popular anymore. And people don't want to hang out with you as much. And you decide, oh, and you come to the realization, oh, it's painful. It's actually lonely to do that. And then, and then you, you're married, and your unsaved spouse, they don't get it. They don't get why you want to go to church all the time. I and mean, it's good to be religious, but aren't you taking it a little bit too serious? And it, it, it causes conflict. And, and your marriage gets a little bit shaky. 
And, and you know why? Because so many things are changing and you're not sure everybody else can handle it. And, and your family, your family, see, they're not getting it at all. And they want you to go back to be the old person you used to be and used to laugh at those kind of jokes and used to be able to handle that and used to be able to do this with them. And they don't understand what's taking place in your life. And now they're saying, I'm leaving you out a little bit because you're too weird. Your career, you had plans. You knew where you were going. You know the trajectory you were on. You know the goals that you had. And now you see things about your job and what they ask for you to do and when you go on trips, what they want you to do and you see what your boss is like and what they expect of you and you're going, I don't know if I have a future in this career anymore. Sticker shock. I see, that's what King Jesus brings. That's what Mary is telling us. That when you crown Jesus as king, it's going to cost you. But I say this to you. Let's join Mary. Let's pour it all out on Jesus. Let's individually and as a church, let's conspire to plan beautiful things that we can do for him. Let's live beautiful lives in small ways and great things so that we can show the world and even to encourage one another that this is how much Jesus means to me. This is what he means to me in my everyday decisions and my everyday life. And I want to choose and purposely pray about and plan about things that I can do with my money, things I can do with my time, and things I can do with my family. You know why? Because I want to purposely show everyone in the world that King Jesus is my king. See, that's really what it looks like when you receive Jesus as king. But See, we have the other text, if you'll turn there, to Matthew 27. Complete polar opposite of that is not crowning him with honor, but there are people out there who crown him with dishonor, and that's what the religious leaders did, and obviously the Roman soldiers as well. The Bible's very careful to show us they mock Jesus. They tell him they put a scarlet robe on him, chapter 27, verses 28 and 29, because that's what kings wore, purple robes crown of thorns. That's what they twisted and they put on his head. They put a reed in his right hand, a stick, and then they beat him with it on his head. And then they mockingly kneel before him and say, hail king of Jews. See, there are people who crown Jesus, but not because they love him, but because they hate him. And really, truthfully, and this is really strong to say, but I want you to hear it because it's true. Here's the choice Jesus puts before us with these two episodes side by side. They basically are this. Here's what you do with Jesus as far as him being king. You either crown him or you kill him. See, that's how strong the choice is. That's how much Jesus is forcing us. He wants to say, listen, if you believe I'm king, then you will crown me and you will live like it. But if you don't, then you will kill me because that's how you will live, see. In first century, crowns were placed on people's head as kings because they were a sign of majesty and honor. Crowns were given to people who had superior rank. And if you were a Roman soldier or a general in particular, if you went and won a victory for the people and defeated a great foe, um, you would be given a crown and you conquered through battle. That's what you would be given as an award. A crown was often in society a It signified appreciation for exceptional contributions to the people that you served. The soldiers were mocking Jesus. 
They're basically saying that you have no superior rank, that you're not really anybody, and you've never contributed to the Jewish or Roman society at all, and everything that your life stands for is basically nothing. And that's why they mock him. And that's why, in contrast to Mary anointing his head, look what the soldiers do to his head, because it makes it obvious to us three times in our text. Verse 29, they put a crown of thorns, but it's on his head. Look at it. Verse 30, they struck him on his head. Verse 37, and when he was dying on the cross, it says, and they put over his head a sign that he says that he is king of the Jews. Why the emphasis on the head? Because that's what it means to be king. And head in the Bible, whether it's head of your home, head of your wife, head of the church, always includes a concept of authority. And what the soldiers were saying, what the Romans were saying, what the religious leaders are saying, and some of us are saying perhaps today is this. When we mock Jesus and we really don't accept him, here's how it comes out. Here's how it's expressed. I don't want him to rule over me. I don't want him to tell me what to do. I'm not willing to pay that price. See, later on, the religious leaders and the people who were there that day they would cry out this in John 19, 12. We have no king but Caesar. See, when Jesus isn't your king, here's what happens. You rebel. You disobey. You do not value him. What you value is your autonomy. What you value is your independence from him. And it's obvious because of the way you treat his headship in your life. See, Here's the hard thing. When you reject Jesus as king and you take the crown off his head, it doesn't just sit still on the table. No, when you take the king off his head, here's the thing. You always put it on your own. See, when you don't crown Jesus king, you are really crowning yourself because you want to do what you want to do. And let me tell you that once that pattern starts taking place in your life, it becomes to the point in some people's lives so extreme that you wouldn't really believe that you ever got to this place. And case in point, they bring out another person and Jesus stands next to Barabbas and Pilate puts before them a choice because that's what Matthew does. He just wants us to keep choosing. And you have Pilate here and Barabbas here and they couldn't be any more opposite. And, but they are so self-willed, they are so rebellious against Jesus and the idea of him being king and the authority in his life. Here's how far it goes, that they would choose a guy, a murderous guy like Barabbas over Jesus. And isn't that crazy? How could you put those two side by side and possibly choose Barabbas over Jesus? You can, and it's not that hard. Why? When Jesus is not your king. See? He wasn't their king. And so we make choices. When he isn't your king, see, then he's not really worth getting up early to read the Bible. He's not really worth getting up to, see, I choose this over that. I choose this over being in church. I choose this over ministry. I choose this instead of giving my money and giving my time and making a priority. And you say, like, have you ever heard, you, you didn't come, you didn't do this, you did this instead of that? You had a chance to do this for Jesus and you chose this? And you, you, you shake your head sometimes and go, what's wrong? What are God's people doing? But you see, it's when we don't crown him king, see, when he's not really the most precious treasure of our life, when he really doesn't have the say and authority, it's crazy sometimes the things that we will choose. But haven't we all done that? 
Haven't we all crowned ourselves at times? Haven't we all sought to be our own authority? And as sinners, those who are apart from Christ in particular, we have rejected him. And in his place, we have crowned ourselves. We have seated ourselves on the throne. In our pride, see, we think that we know better than him. I used to go when we were... When my kids were young, we used to go to Cracker Barrel and buy the fireplace, especially in the wintertime. You know they have that big checkerboard. Have you ever seen that there? And you go there and you can sit there and we play checkers. We had gigantic checkers and this board is huge. And, and I, I was terrible. So even when we were small, Lance would play me and he would win. I, I'm just, I don't know why. I stink at checkers. I, don't, I can't get it. But I would, he would say this. He would go and b- three people would jump over there and then he would say this, king me. And I'd have to take one of the, and I'd have to king him. And he'd say it again, king me, king me. Just like that, king me. <laughs> See, in our pride, listen, you know what we say? I know better than you, God. You really don't need to tell me what to do in this. You know what we're saying? King me. See, in our lust, See, we look at things on the internet, and we have these desires, and we have these thoughts, and we say, God, I know that what, what, this will really satisfy me. You just don't get it. You know what we're saying? King me. See? In our self-sufficiency, when we think that we can please God because we're good people, and we've been baptized as babies, and we try to do the catechism, or we try to be good people as Baptists, or whatever it is. See, and we think that God's impressed by how good we are. You know what we're saying? King me. In our racism, when we think because we're white or we're black or any other color that we're more superior than everybody else, you know what we're saying to God? King me. In our life plans, in our career ladder climbing, and our materialism, and our greed, when we think money will do it, or power, or position will do it for us, we're saying this to Jesus, King me. When we use people as pawns in our little schemes to build our own little kingdoms and pretend we're not doing it, we're saying, Jesus, King me. That's why he wore a crown of thorns. And that's why they put it on his head because they were saying this, not you, but King me. There's a book by, called The Crucifixion, A Forensic Inquiry by Frederick Zagibi. He's a medical doctor. He is a forensic doctor. And he worked in a New York hospital and other places for 30 years. And he, in his book, in a, in a chapter, analyzes the crown of thorns and what it meant for it to be on Jesus' head And he says, you can't believe the facial pain of the crown of thorns, not like a circle around your head, but like a cap. It was more like this around your head. And they said that the thorns digging into your skin and the bleeding from the vessels in your skin, the facial pain has been described as knife-like jabs, electric shock, jabs with a red-hot poker. He says, as bad as that end, he goes, the real kicker is how easy it would happen and be set off over and over again. He said, any talking, he said, if a gentle breeze came by, it would irritate your skin, and it would start all over again. Facial movements, crying, he said, any of those things would set it off like fire. And then when they took the crown of thorns and the reed and hit his head and pounded them even deeper, he says, you can't even begin to imagine the paralysis in your face and the pain all over your face. He said it was terrible pain. And as bad as that was to wearing our crown of thorns, can I tell you, that's not the Bible emphasis. That's not the Bible emphasis. You know what the emphasis was? The spiritual reason he wore our crown of thorns. 
That's what Sandy's saying. The day he wore my crown. You know what the crown of thorns is? The, the crown he wore for you? Well, it's the curse. See, Genesis 3.18 says, when Adam and Eve sinned, here's part of the curse. Thorns and thistles will be for you. From the very beginning when we sinned, part of the curse was thorns would be there. And you read through all the Old Testament, the Canaanites were considered thorns in Israel's side. The way of the sluggard in Proverbs, it says, is like a hedge of thorns. God's judgment is like thorns in your side. Seeds, Jesus says in the parable, when they fall upon thorny ground. See, it's not good ground. It's bad ground. And over and over again throughout the Bible, see, thorns are symbolic of our sin and the cursed condition that we are in. So when they take the crown of thorns and put it on Jesus' head, you know what he, they're doing? We're crowning you king because here's what has to happen. He has to bear the curse for us. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 3, 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Becoming a curse for us. Read in Crown of Thorns. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He hung on the tree. He was cursed by God. He wore our cursed cap. Can I say that? Why? Because that's what it takes to give you the opportunity to have him be king. Truthfully, he wore a crown of thorns so that you could wear a crown of life, a crown of righteousness, a crown of glory. I'm so happy to tell you that the story ends in Revelation 19, in verse 12, when John the seer records this, and I saw heaven open, and I saw a white horse, and him who sat on it, from whom the face of the heavens and earth fled away. And he says, and, on his, and his name is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And on his head, on his head were many crowns. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He wears our crowns. He had to wear our crown now so he could wear our crown later. And Matthew says to us today, the question he's been asking throughout the gospel that he wrote, is he your king? Listen, is he really your king? Let's close in prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around on Palm Sunday, the religious response would be, I came here. I want to lay down my proverbial palm in front of Jesus because I think he's king. And I'm glad for that if that's indeed true. But deeper, let's go a little deeper and ask the question, is he really your king? Or do you truthfully bow before the impostors, the Herods and the Caesars of our world? Is that really your king? See, you can't leave here today. Crown him or kill him. There is no middle ground. And see, I want Jesus to be my counselor. I want him to be my friend. I want him to be my buddy. He can't be any of those things until he is first your king. Have you crowned him? What kind of crown have you put on his head by the way that you live? Today's the day. If you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, I'll, I'll be here afterwards. Call this week. Set up an appointment. I would love to take the scriptures and let you know how you can have your sins forgiven because only King Jesus forgives sins.
But if you're a Christian and you know him, my question is, is your life beautiful? Is it a memorial? Does it declare his infinite worth? If not, tell him today, I crown you again as king. Father, please hear our cry. We come before your throne of grace, and that's what we need today, grace. For those who don't know King Jesus, oh, grant them mercy that they might submit, that they might repent, they might surrender their lives unto your authority and bow before you as Savior and Lord. And for those of us who know you, Father, may we live out your rule and reign that everyone might know by the way we live our lives that you are the infinite worthy King. For it's in your matchless name I pray, amen.